Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this program contains the names and voices of those who have passed. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration. I'd just like to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming up. On ABC Radio. You know, I feel compelled to use my documentary and myself as a tool to go back in there, tweak their own consciences, have a look at my story. Your story, obviously, can reflect on my story. My responsibility is to use myself as a means to give great healing and meaning to uh, people that have been struggling with their own lives. Celebrating the life of Uncle Jack Charles. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Last week saw the sad passing of actor, musician and revered Victorian Aboriginal elder Uncle Jack Charles. Known as the grandfather of Aboriginal theatre, he was one of Australia's most beloved and charismatic actors. In a career spanning several decades, Uncle Jack used his creative platforms to share painful and personal truths about the brutal impact of past government policies on his community. As a child, Uncle Jack was taken from his mother and placed into institutional care. But despite these struggles, Uncle Jack forged a formidable career on both stage and screen. In 1971, he co-founded Australia's first Aboriginal-run theatre group in Melbourne. His most notable works include the groundbreaking 1978 Australian film The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, the autobiographical play Jack Charles and the Crown, and appearances in Clever Man, Wolf Creek and Black Comedy. Uncle Jack was the first Indigenous recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Victoria's Green Room Awards, and he also received an Australia Council of the Arts Red Ochre Award for Most Outstanding Indigenous Artist. Earlier this year, he was awarded NAIDOC Male Elder of the Year at the National NAIDOC Awards in Melbourne. As we pay tribute to his life and career, we look back on a conversation I had with Uncle Jack in 2019. It followed the release of his tell-all book, Uncle Jack Charles, A Born-Again Blackfella. Well, I'm getting close to my dotage now, 76, and so it behooves me to uh, write a book. A person like me, uh, we leave uh, legacies like Bob Mazza left a legacy, Uncle Bob Mazza left a legacy. You know, he and I, we kick-started the modern black theatre movement here in Australia. So I realised my potential as a writer, as a matter of fact, when I was co-writing Jack Charles versus The Crown with the great John Romerill from The Pram Factory, who wrote the original play, A Four-Hander Bastardy, based loosely on my alcoholic memory of meeting my mum for the first time. And we called it bastardy. Romerill said, I called it bastardy, Jack, because you lived a life of buggery and bastardy in the Box Hill Boys' Home. Many people mistake it, the word bastardry, and I have to continually remind them, it's not bastardry, it's bastardy. I'm a fatherless child. And now I am no longer a fatherless child. As a stolen person, I did hook up with the Koori Heritage Trust and link up. And I was given unto me, uh, you know, almost the full extent of my denied, lost and hidden identity. I know who the fuck I think I am now, like that television show. So it's people like me. 
Once we've jumped off the impediments of having a lifetime of addiction, we have this beginning of realising our sense of, of a clarity of mind to try and understand who we are. It uh, behooves us to connect with LinkUp and the Corey Heritage Trust. So yes, I got a lot of information and much of the information that came to me by these two ladies, Jennifer Bates and Margaret, at the uh, Corey Heritage Trust and LinkUp gave me bits of my history and it comes with certain amount of uh, counsel too because uh, as you start receiving information about what's been written about you personally from the Aboriginal Protection Board when you were a youngster, leaving the home and being fostered out to Widow Murphy and her twin bodgy sons up in Blackburn and that, you know, as a Borstal boy, you can get upset with what's been written about you. So many of us that were stolen, we gained our criminal record from the time we were stolen. If you were a child in need of care and attention, your first offence was a child in need of care and attention at four months. That was a criminal record. That was your first criminal record. And so often, many of us, once we were out of the, the borstal system and into uh, foster mums and adopted mums and dads, we wondered, we queried as to why the police already knew of us. So that's the journey I've been on, this struggle, and I thought I'd put all this into my book because uh, I know that my story reflects on so many other people, black and white, people of the, the clan, the forgotten people. I was the only Aboriginal kid moved into the Box Hill Boys' home in 1957. I was taken at four months. My mum had managed to keep a hold on me, but under the assimilation policy, all the babies were to be taken and to be... Uh, raised in a baby's institution. Well, me, I was taken to City Mission's baby's home in Brunswick. She managed to keep me until uh, four months at Dash's Paddock. I was born in Royal Women's Hospital, Grattan Street, Carlton, and she took me to uh, Yorta Yorta Country at uh, Dash's Paddock there, an old rubbish tip. It was a blackfella camp. And I must let you know that when the young queen was driven from Melbourne up to Shepherd and Marupna to look at the cannery and that, they put a hessian fence along that part of it so the queen, the young queen, wouldn't see us living in third world conditions. What a hoot. <laughs> You're so right that the experiences you had reflect the experiences of many Aboriginal people and, and non-Indigenous people, but I was struck reading the book that my father had a similar experience. He was put in a mostly non-white home. Right was an, the only Aboriginal child and had some contact with his other siblings. But what struck me in your book is you write about the fact that it's really important to talk about what happened. And men like my father could never do that. And I thought it's an extraordinary thing that you came to understand quite early, the importance of actually talking about things that other people would suppress. And I was wondering if you could share with us how you came to know such an important piece of wisdom so early? I realised probably from the age of nine that I was a unique person in the eyes of the Salvos. I was a, a novelty in one way. Every class picture shot of us, the classroom, we had a state school in the boys' home, SS4151, and I remember when we were all there for a group shot, I was placed in dead centre and that the little Aboriginal kid amongst all these other white kids. And that when we had a uh, picture of all the boys in the home, 
there I was dead centre against amongst all these fellas, of which at that time I kind of considered were my first and foremost siblings. We had no seeming racism functioning in that home, although nowadays uh, <laughs> in my travels I've been meeting up with uh, my fellow comrades and that's the 56, 60 year old and coming up to me and saying, do you remember us from Box Hill Boys Home, Jack? And I said, no, no, fellas, I don't remember yous. You know, and they said, well, Jack, uh, we were at uh, the Box Hill Boys Home with you and I distinctly remember you chasing me around a footy oval. And so I'm prompted to ask, why? Why was I chasing you around a footy oval? I think I called you Blackie, Jackie. And I said, that upset you and you're chasing me. So what happened? Oh, you bashed me, Jack. (laughs) Oh, there I am, you know, years later apologising to this old fella for having (laughs) given him a couple of gangster slaps. (laughs) But yes, look, my life's been on a roll since then. You know, these were my first and foremost siblings. We had no real problems in the home. Uh, Yes, uh, sexually, you know, assaulted by some of the older boys and uh, the officers and that... um, But all this I'd hidden and bottled up since the time I was asked, just after I left the last jail sentence in 2005, I was approached by a bunch of my fellow sufferers from the home who said that they were part of the class action group against the Box Hill Boys Home and would I give them my phone number and, you know, validate and give credence to the stories of what went on in the Box Hill Boys Home. I was the perfect person to do so. So I gave them my number. It was one of the elements of me coming out of that last jail sentence truly inspired to be a a useful tool, not only unto myself, but to uh, my community. I'd undertaken the Muramali program delivered by Auntie Lorraine Peters and her daughter, and I like to say it relit the burning embers of my fucked up, locked up, grogged up, drugged up dreamings and that. Instantly, and I had the notion that I would leave that jail and I would proclaim myself when I returned to Collywood Smith Street Strip as the Kadaich man, the lawman of the Smith Street Strip. And it's been a hoot because I undertook that role. The biggest role I've ever taken in my life was to be a ridgy diggy, true blue, I shouldn't have true blue, true black, elder statesman uh, living alive and uh, with a clarity of mind and with the notion that I would be the Kadaich man, the lawman because I'm the one that people, women especially, come up and complain to me about what's happening to them, who's been mugging around with them when they were drunk and etc. So I'm the bloke that has to have a talk with certain people and tell them to blow that action, you know, stop that action. So once I started, you know, on this journey of pulling people up, I had some problems with my would-be-could-be gangster cousin dealers, and it's my responsibility to even out those names. If I didn't do it, nothing would be said. Their consciences wouldn't have been tweaked themselves. So I went up against the so-called dreaded clans, and it caused me... I wasn't frightened of my life. I would jump off the tram whenever I entered into Collingwood Fitzroy. I I do remember jumping off the tram on the corner of uh, Johnson and Smith Street, and... uh, and the sphincter would automatically tighten because I wouldn't know from where these fellas would come, either with a loaded syringe or a knife at me. So I have had problems being welcomed into Aboriginal Melbourne when I was younger on the second occasion coming in. You know, I write about coming in at the behest of my fellow workers. They were the ones that conned me. 
into going into Collingwood Fitzroy. They knew I was happy with Widow Murphy and her twin Bodgy sons and that a lot of you blackfellas over in Collingwood Fitzroy, Jack, you should go and see them. I bet you've got family amongst them. So, you know, I was nearly finishing off my apprenticeship as a glass beveler, doing edge work on mirrors, making mirrors, taking scratches out of old mirrors and etc. It was a great job. I liked the work ethic. And these people, ex-soldiers from Egypt and also from the Kokoda Trail, had returned back to their place of work. They were the ones that instigated my journey of discovering who I am. So one Thursday night with a full pay packet that I normally take home unopened to Mrs Murphy, I uh, took the tram into Collingwood Fitzroy, you know, through the city and then uh, on 86 down to Gertrude Street and Napier Street. And of course, no sooner had I jumped off that tram when an old black fella did pull me up and he accused me of being Charles, Blanchy Charles's boy. And of course, I shat myself, you know. And so he grabs me, this old fella. I remember him hugging me and kissing me, beery breath and that. And he takes me into the builder's arms. Every face in the place seemed to be black. Anyone who could, they rush up to introduce themselves to me as an uncle, an auntie, a cousin. I am so overwhelmed by these people's hugs and beery kisses. I didn't drink, so I dived into my pay packet and I had a few beers and I shouted lemon squash for myself. And one old lady croaked, your mum, she living and she living up in Squan Hill. You should go and see her, young fella. So I will, I tell her, first chance I get. Well, I get home late that night to Mrs Murphy. I jump on the door stoop. I'm late. She's got me dinner in the oven and that, you know, and she's really pissed off. And I jump up and down and shout out, joy, oh joy, mum, I just found mum. I expected her to share my joy, but no such luck. She wrangles the story out of me. My night in a Fitzroy pub, being recognised as a Charles, but worse still, my pay packet ripped open and a third of it spent. This riles her no end. She comes at me. Those people will tell you anything. Yeah, well, I believe them, I say, raising my hand. Am I going to hit her? I see the fright in her eyes. Get to bed, she hisses before backing off. No sooner had I put on my pyjamas and settled down for the night when she calls me to the front door. A police divvy wagon's parked in the drive and I've driven over to Royal Park Home for juvenile offenders. I was a ward of the state, a child of the crown and would have been until I'm 18 and that woman I've called mum had deemed me unruly, disobedient. So for the first time, I remember distinctly, locked alone in a cell, crying myself to sleep. It seemed, from then on after, all my Christian sensibilities were somewhat blackened, and it became for me a series of incarcerations. I thought I'd just like to bleed that in because it's from Jack Charles versus the Crown. It tells you at the beginning, because the next day when the door opened, was that I saw all the other failed foster kids from all the other different homes, Bayswater, Burwood Boys Home, who also had failed their foster mums and adopted mums and dads and that, and already living a life of crime. So I remember my boss bailing me out, taking me back to work, because I was his favourite little Aboriginal worker. 
He had a habit of bringing his mates along to meet Jackie Charles, his favourite Aboriginal worker in the Miraf part of the factory. I met many of his mates, but he brought around this particular bloke one time. I was about 15. And he said, Don, Don Bradman, meet Jack Charles. Jack, meet Don Bradman. So I shook the hand of Don Bradman. I didn't know who he was, you know. <laughs> I, I'm not a, really a sports person. And my fellow workers told me who he was. And the irony is, you know, the second time I'm employed by the ABC, I get to be employed in a series called Behind the Legend. And I get to play Eddie Gilbert, the hotshot fast bowler from Sherberg, who bowls that bloke out twice for a duck. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see it because, you know, it was one of my first big things on the TV and I didn't know how to confront a camera. I had been working eight years in an amateur capacity with the new theatre, but after I'd done eight or seven years with them, they did push me out, and that story's in there too. I'd tried to make my way into professional theatre, and that even auditioning for Apocalypse Now. The original scripts call for an Aboriginal deserter from the Australian Army, and I was told, Jack, you'll be... Uh, you deserted the Australian Army, you went and joined the Hill Tribes and you come into Marlon Brando's camp with a bunch of drugs and you have your words to Marlon Brando and you also have word from the for a great white chiefs at the Pentagon. Uh, you have to tell him of their displeasure with his behaviour. And that, oh, that sounded good. I didn't know how to do all this. But nonetheless, you know, there I was. You know, it's just unbelievable that, that I could have been, if only... You know, there's plenty of live moments in my life if only I'd had the gumption to know, you know, how to handle a camera. I'd just had one of my beautiful big buck teeth pulled out. I was the first patient of the dental service in the Aboriginal Health Service. I had one of my buck tooth chipped with a police 38 that had been shoved into my mouth with his young red-headed copper, and I tried to force him to pull the trigger but he wouldn't, he freaked out and he yanked the 38 out of my mouth and it chipped one of my big, beautiful buck teeth. I've got these miserable chompers now, you know. One of the things I think is really wonderful about your book, Uncle Jack, is that there are these really gut-wrenching moments, but even in your childhood, just to use that as an example, you find ways to have a really rich imaginative life and you talk about the sparks the sort of seeds for your opportunities as an actor. You always sort of found highlights and ways to be resilient through those years. Oh, well, yes, I said I was a, a novelty in some sense, but I did have a great teacher who I can only assume that he thought I might have trouble down the track later on. So he gave me you know, some elocution lessons and also uh, taught me about the monetary system that 12 pennies made a bob, a shilling, a diner, and etc. But I was also chosen on one special occasion when I was nine, and I realised my potential as a performer even then. I was specifically chosen on one occasion to learn a song for a special event. There was a big Salvation Army Congress at the exhibition buildings, and we boys from all the boys' homes and girls from the girls' homes were all bussed in and Salvation Army people from all over Australia came. So it was a full house. And we saw Billy Onus throw his boomerang around two chandeliers and we all, ooh, I'm hard and all that. We were all amazed and that. And, and then came my special moment. I must have been cute enough to have been paired with this pretty girl my size from a girl's home. 
We were there to hand over some posies to those in braid on the dais. She curtsied, so I curtsied. <laughs> Causes a stir and a rumbling amongst the Salvationists, but me, I enjoyed the attention. Now, this is followed by my special moment on the big stage of God to sing a song, as I say. I was especially chosen to sing. One tribe, the Yarra Yarra dwelling right here, met thick bush and gum trees tall. With these through boomerangs and hurled their sharp spears, they knew every bird bush call. Often went walk about and camp far away, everybody free as air. Running in the forest trees, swimming in the Yarra stream, life went on without no care. Cockaburra laugh with gladness, kangaroo jump for joy. Aborigine throws his boomerang, forest birds a gay merry tune sang. There amid the bright yellow blossom, bright and wild the red gum flames. Everybody lives in gladness, all because a white man came. <laughs> <laughs> what a hoot! <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was an orphan, Annie. <laughs> a tablet rasa to be written on, washed in the blood of the lamb. And uh, I fondly remember that. This is because I'm totally off everything. I still smoke cigarettes. I feel I have to have some foible, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, basically my concept is when I speak to Tom Carmer, you know, the anti-quit smoking campaign, I said, Tom, let's try and put some money into quit drugs. Uh, I'd rather all that going in towards working with people in our youth detention centres and adult prisons to stop people using ice and etc. and to uh, allow elders like myself to go in with Archie Roach. And so uh, Archie Roach, I've joined the foundation. We've been going into youth detention centres on NADOC weeks only and a couple of days between their school holidays and etc. It's not enough for me. You know, I feel compelled to use my documentary and myself as a tool to go back in there, tweak their own consciences, have a look at my story. Your story obviously can reflect on my story. And I wouldn't mind be speaking to the blackfellas in jail, I'd be speaking to the Somalians and all the other different nationalities in our prison systems. My responsibility is to use myself as a means to give great healing and meaning to uh, people that have been struggling with their own lies. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories too. This week on Speaking Out, we're paying tribute to acclaimed actor, musician and activist Uncle Jack Charles who passed away last week aged 79. 
Taken from his mother as an infant and raised under the assimilation policy, Uncle Jack Charles's early life was marked by addiction and incarceration. But as you'll soon hear, reconnecting with community and culture helped him turn his life around. Uncle Jack earned a crust busking on the streets and he set one of the poems of Ujuru Nunakal, the pain-filled son of mine, to music. Right down there somewhere. <laughs> my son, your troubled eyes that's mine, puzzled and hurt by color line, your black skin soft as velvet shine what can I tell you son of mine well I can tell you of heartaches hatred blind I could tell you of crimes that shame shame mankind a brutal wrong and deeds malign of rapes, rapes and murder, son of mine. But I will tell you instead of brave, brave and fine when lives are black. That's Uncle Jack Charles with the Ujuru New Knuckle poem, Son of Mine. On Speaking Out this week, we're bringing you a conversation with the late Uncle Jack Charles. Recorded following the release of his memoir in 2019, Uncle Jack details his story of cultural disconnection and loss of identity and his subsequent involvement in a number of community-focused programs. Well, I, I realised that in seeking to try and reinstate, reconstitute the Nindabaya uh, uh, workshop in Collingwood Fitzroy, Mark II, community hub that we had. Everybody was invited. But you can go there, have a meal, jump on the woodworking machine. We used to make three-ply boomerangs and we'd take them into primary schools and give two of these three-ply boomerangs to children. 
bright maize, redheads. Matches were in on the deal. They'd give us boxes of uh, uh, matches without the redheads. And we get the kids to chew the matches and make little brushes. And we give them two boomerangs each. So that was one of the, uh, the things, the cottage industries in the old uh, Nindabaya workshop in George Street in the 70s. We also had the gym there, and it was also a, a place to veg out. Anybody could wander in in the course of a lazy day and do something there. Lots of books to read. Now, if I were to develop the Nindabaya workshop Mark II in Collingwood Fitzroy, I would have my pottery shop in jail because I ran a pottery shop in jail. It was at a time when the Office of Corrections were the clients of the Education Department. So we had some bright uh, school principals and teachers who were uh, developing new notions, new ideas of uh, educating, uh, giving us a new way forward in education. I always gravitated towards the education centres whenever I was doing jail time. I didn't want to join the bush gang to cut down old pine growth and plant pine trees Matter of fact, I remember telling the governor, I'm not allowed to do that, I'm Aboriginal, Gov. And <laughs> he, he said, well, all right, well, you know, I know you're starting up the pottery shop, Jack, stick with it. So I learned the fine art of ceramica in prison. Every time I did jail, I was required to dust off the old pottery shop that hadn't been used since I was last there. <laughs> Nobody, so I called my pottery shops in jail, Psycho Ceramica. Because <laughs> you have to be a crackpot to be in the neck in the first place, you know. And I kind of ran it with Aboriginal law, you know, even though I knew little of my own heritage at that time. But I, I realised you weren't allowed to be serapaxed or rohypnolled off your tits in psychoceramica because you, you'd be like a bull in the china shop and that, you know. <laughs> so I was taken very seriously by the prisons department and by the gangsters and all, all my fellow prisoners in jail. The only rule the governor told me was, Jack, make sure that nobody makes bongs, OK? <laughs> so, OK, mulling bowls all right, Gov? <laughs> mulling bowls, no, they're all right, Jack, you know, but no bongs. <laughs> so every time one did, because they were gangsters, they were killers and things like this, so eventually when one did make a bong and would give me to fire up, I was in charge of the kilns. I had the key to the kilns. I had to have a key there because uh, when you're mucked up uh, up here in the top paddock, you can be a little bit uh, impetuous. You want to open the kiln before it's supposed to be open and everything cracks. That was a fine thing about me. I taught them that you have to be patient if you are going to be working in ceramica. I remember uh, adding in some water to their bongs purposely so it would explode once the heat rose and that. And I'd always, oh, sorry, mate, you must have had an air bubble in that, you know. <laughs> and they believed me, because none of them knocked me about over it, you know. <laughs> so, but yes, it was, uh, you know, a, a real hoot to be in a, in a situation where uh, I made a profit in prison. In an open camp down Gippsland Way at Guadron Jail, it's now been decommissioned as a jail and been handed over to Aboriginal justice and now magistrates in uh, Melbourne and down in Kulin country down, down Gippsland Way can send people into the Wanron home. You know, all the cells have disappeared. Parts of my pottery shop is still there, but uh, all the elements of prison has disappeared. There's cottages there, four to a cottage, and it's won an award quite a few years ago for its success 
It's keeping people out of jail. It's deterring them from uh, uh, regressing and that. And it's given them hope for the future. And they've been reconnected back into their communities. I've heard one Yorta Yorta fella speak so eloquently about how uh, he was offered the opportunity of going down to the healing place down at Wanron, down near Sale, Gippsland, in Yarram. And he took up that opportunity and he started to even play football. He remembers playing football before he got into the dreaded drugs. And now he's, uh, he's returned back to, to being a, a fine, upstanding man in Shepparton and Maroopna. And he's one person that I'd like to source, to employ, to be part of the Nindabaya workshop, or we might have to have a different name. Because I like to use my sense of being a man of manipulating people and that, and their minds, their consciences, I, I tell, you know, my people down in, when I do events down in Melbourne, it seems that uh, Bastardy the Doco failed to impress Yarra Council, failed to impress Minister Dickie Wynne and the Aboriginal Affairs people. Jack Charles versus the Crown failed to impress them too. Would this book, will it fail also? So the idea is that I've been pushing it like that. And uh, Uncle Doug Nichols' daughter, Pam Nichols, Pam Pedersen, lives in Shepparton and Maroopna. And she rings up and says, Jack, I'm going to hunt up a, a house, a halfway home for those coming back into the community of Shepparton and Maroopna after they'd done their time in Malmesbury nearby. So this was a hoot. Even the, uh, or some very uh, wealthy people have suggested that we use their building to have our meetings in the development of the workshop in Shepparton and Maroopna. And also um, a free legal service up in uh, Shepparton and Maroopna had also said, I found you an empty building. I know all along, all these small communities have got empty buildings. The highway has bypassed them. Businesses of long-standing, large edifices have closed down and these buildings are just doing nothing. So the idea now is to use, as I say, my fine sense of con artistry to convince the local mayor and the councils to give me that building. I'll give you three peppercorns. I need it for 99 years and that, you know. And, and because just recently, Darabin Council gave the old Preston Police Station to cool and deadly radio station, moving them back into community where they'd been hidden out in the far, far distant Bandura. So we're back into the fold and that. And that took two peppercorns and they've got it for 99 years. We are an open society, a very welcoming society. And Doe was on again last night, a repeat of my episode with me. It was a hoot to be painted by that fella. You know, I call him the great extractor. He extracted information that I hadn't previously divulged and that. And suddenly, what, what did I say, you know? Well, it went viral here and overseas. He won the Spar Award specifically for that episode. It tells you straight that people who are open-minded, who own the really serious bad parts of their lives, like myself, I owned up to everything. As a matter of fact, I cleaned up the books every time I was busted. And it came to pass one time that the Jacks had said, Jack, you've admitted to seven, 700 crimes here. 700, Jack, you know. We can't charge you with you. You're a movie star. We can't charge you with 700, Jack. 
would 75 do? <laughs> so, you know, I've had some great moments, some sad moments, some very scary moments with the Jacks, with the Victorian Jacks policemen. But now, you know, I've even been up to Waverley Police Academy and I've given them a, you know, a gentle piece of my mind. Well, a piece of my mind, but very gently. And that this is what you do as an elder, being able to be unleashed to the young cadets in a police uh, academy. Now, I know more history about myself and my great-greats. So I know that Johnny Charles and Simon Wonga, who retired at the Coranderk Mission or Station, along with William Barrack, the last of the Melbourneian Woiwurrung leaders, chiefs, they were members of the Victorian Native Police Force. OK? You have to out this, because it's in the book. You know, it's my job to out those hidden bits of history that has been, been denied to not only you, Mob, but also to the Indigenous people. Our relatives were employed to kill off many, many of our own kind, many, many different tribes in the state of Victoria. Indeed, Johnny Charles was trained up with William Barack and others of that Victorian uh, Native Police Force, were trained across the border into New South Wales, up to Wiradjuri country, to quell the warring Wiradjuri with the assistance of the Queensland Native Police Force. The Wiradjuri people here in New South Wales were the last to be contained, controlled, defeated. And there's the irony. My great-grandfather helped that come about. And also, it's ironic that the year before last, the Koori Heritage Trust found who my father was, and he happens to be a Philip Burns from Leeton, New South Wales, which consequently then tells me that I'm Wiradjuri on my father's side. It's nice to know that a fellow's not a mere Koori, but I am Wiradjuri on my father's side, and Zha Zha Barang on my great-great side, Johnny Charles' side, my paternal side, and uh, Yorta Yorta Boon Barang on my mum's side, and uh, I've still yet to discover why Chuganini is on my family tree. So there's some element on my great maternal side. There's a lot of history to discover yet. I was doing Secret River sometime up here. I was going to play Yellow Monday, but I made the mistake on the second week's rehearsal. I dropped into Strawberry Hills for a while and pulled down the manager and said, listen, I intend to uh, put in a proposal for 50 grand I wanted to seek for a coffee table picture book I wanted to produce. And is it true? Any of us seeking Aboriginal funding have to prove our Aboriginality. Get back to me at rehearsals. So they got back to me that morning at rehearsals and they said, Jack, Uncle Jack, they said, we make no exceptions. You do have to prove your Aboriginality. So I took immediate exception to that. I downed tools, as you do, you know, and uh, went out and had a beer, as a matter of fact. I mulled over for a day and a bit, and then I went. The next morning, I had decided to abandon Sydney and to go back to Melbourne and to start seeking a way to address this issue once and for all. So many people over the years, songmen and women, desert artists, writers and etc., had been roundly refused to be accommodated over the fact of... Uh, proof of Aboriginality. So you needed, from my observation, a dead-set bastard to pull him up. I don't want to sound like Trumpish here, but I couldn't see anybody supporting me. So I went down to Melbourne, and I remember apologising to the cast and that. I fondly remember 
Kate Blanchett coming down and leaning over from her wonderfully great height and whispering in my ear, Uncle Jack, Sydney Theatre Company and I totally support your stance. It's about time and thank you very much for pulling out and plenty of time for me to get another person to undertake your role. And they got a better person, a Bundjalung man. So I went down to Melbourne, sought advice from Fitzroy Free Legal Service, employed Ron Merkel, a local QC bloke, and the human rights law firm. They didn't know how to run a case. Nobody's run a case like this before. I kind of think of that little fellow at Pauline Hanson's party who asked for the empirical numbers of something for some reason or other. And I said, you need to give me the numbers, the empirical numbers, OK? Ask their lawyers to uh, give you the empirical numbers of how many white people over the past 32 years have come into the ATSI board, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Board of the Arts Council, claiming to be Aboriginal, seeking dedicated Aboriginal arts funding. And if you did get them funding, and if they were found wanting, did you charge them with fraud and perjury? Give me those numbers. So they came back a couple of weeks later and they said, yes, Uncle, there were two. What, over the past 32 years, you're telling me that there were two white fellows that come in so what happened, I said. I said, well, Jack, we actually lost the cases. What do you mean? Well, Jack, it was found that they were Aboriginal. I said, oh, right, OK. Uh, so who were they? Colin Johnson was one. Colin Johnson's from Perth, a Noongar fellow who'd been stolen. He wrote about his discovering of his Noongar-ness in Wildcat Falling. And the other fellow was Archie Weller, who wrote the book uh, Day of the Dog. So these two were roundly set upon by the ATSI board of the Arts Council, found that they were indeed Aboriginals. They made a mistake. I told them I'd always heard that this was a bit of a furphy, that there are no white people in the arts that would dare have the temerity, the cheek, claiming to be Aboriginal when they're not seeking dedicated Aboriginal arts funding. It's a bit of a furphy. So it doesn't happen in the arts. It might happen in our other services, but not in the arts. The final argument with them was that I know of no white person across the entire continent and our islands that would ever want to be a black fella. Why would you want to be a black fella? Unless you're from the home for the bewildered or you're on drugs or, you know, you're sick, you know, there's so too many kangaroos in the top paddock or something, you know. Nobody would want to be an Aboriginal. There are many white Aboriginal kids that have been told, never tell anybody you're Aboriginal because you won't get on. Now, we have many pale-faced people in the arts going to ATSI, proud of their heritage, going to Whopper, going to QPAC, all the College for the Arts, and they're coming out in their droves and they're contributing to the landscape of Australia by writing, performing, dancing, uh, new stories for Australia to absorb and etc. So we're, we're light years ahead of ourselves now, which is great. This is what an elder does in a responsible position that I am in at the moment. I have to pull up people if I see that they're doing wrong and through positive, I, I did get that 50 grand this year. As a matter of fact, they called me up. <laughs> the, the people who had asked me to prove me Aboriginality had phoned in and said, Uncle Jack, we've just decided you to be the male recipient of the Red Ochre Lifetime Achievement Award. And uncle, it comes with 50 grand. <laughs> and it was a real hoot because, you know, uh, I didn't remind them of how they had slighted me by requesting me, you know, the last surviving grandfather of Indigenous theatre 
to prove my Aboriginality. I was incensed. I nearly gave up theatre, as a matter of fact. And if it wasn't to the fact that I remember Bob pushing me to keep going, because I remember going up to the tent embassy at the time of the big demos up there, and the Black Power people were up there, and I was really shitting myself. I didn't want to perform. The first Aboriginal theatre production, we were performing it up there. So ANU said, do it over here, Jack. So we did. Jack Charles is up and fighting. Series of comical reviews and songs and etc. And all the blacks had gathered to the fray from the embassy. All those left-wing people, those black power movement people, had come and seen it. This was the first of its kind for them to absorb and to see as a potential for maybe even telling their stories or pushing their notions of uh, equality and education for Indigenous people, housing for Indigenous health and all that kind of stuff. I remember that Dennis Walker, Kath Walker, Uturudu Knuckles' son, came storming around the back and he wanted to kill me. I had sung son of mine. I was in Bendigo jail many years ago and I love reading. Reading got me through jail. You know, I read many books and I read poems, but I suddenly picked up Uderu New Knuckles' book of poems and I, I was quite taken in with Son of Mine. And it was written for Dennis, he says, that when he was nine or ten or something, he kept on coming home all mucked up and dirty clothes. He'd been bashing the kids. Why do I have to fight these white kids, Mum? So she was compelled to write this song. So I used to sing it in Bendigo Jail. I had a, a rock group in there. I called ourselves the Just Us. And I used to sing this song, uh, you know, in a blues fashion. It was a mother singing to her son, you know, son of mine. But here I sang it for this show with the music from Bob and a couple of other people in the show. And Dennis wanted to kill me. Uncle Bob Mazza stood in his way and said, Bob, if you want to get to this little fella, you've got to go through me first. So Bob was the one I wanted to abandon theatre at that time. <laughs> I wanted to start, you know, uh, becoming a muso again, you know. I've always fancied myself as a singer. I remember being billed along with the great uh, Harold Blair at uh, one time in Melbourne Town Hall. When I was 15, I was trying to push my way into music and I said, put your sweet lips a little closer to the phone and that. I was introduced as Jack Charles, the glass beveler, and Harold Blair, after the song, came out, well sung, Jack, but stick to glass beverly. <laughs> I've had a lot of good things happen to me, some strange things, but my memory, my clarity of mind has been able to uh, put it in the book and tell you of some things that aren't in the book right now. So I am blessed over the fact that you people are the source of my strength and resolve to be the leading black light that I seem to have become. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's award-winning actor and activist Uncle Jack Charles. He was speaking with me in 2019 following the release of his memoir, Uncle Jack Charles, A Born Again Blackfella. Uncle Jack passed away last week at the age of 79. He is remembered for his wit, sense of humour, cheekiness, honesty and his relentless campaigning to make the world a better place. He will be so deeply missed by all of us. To take you out, we'll leave you with some music from the late and great Uncle Archie Roach. Here he is with Song to Sing. Uncle Jack Charles featured in the music video for the song, which would go on to win Film Clip of the Year at the National Indigenous Music Awards. When you are down 
That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we take a look back at the history of rugby league in New South Wales. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.